Welcome to Finance Against Slavery and Trafficking, the podcast. Each episode, we'll take you on a deep dive into the connections between global finance and modern slavery and human trafficking. We'll look at all the different ways that the financial sector can harness its leverage to end modern slavery, forced labor, and human trafficking, and bring you a roundup of all the latest developments from ESG regulation to revealing research. Welcome back to Finance Against Slavery and Trafficking, or FAST, the podcast. I'm James Kakane, founder and senior fellow at FAST. In this episode, we're going to be looking at the role of development finance. We'll hear from a survivor of modern slavery about how restrictions on economic agency create the conditions that make people vulnerable to exploitation and how enslavement further reduces people's economic agency. We'll hear too from practitioners in development finance institutions and development agencies about how they understand modern slavery risks and what they're doing to restore people's economic agency. And we'll hear from Anti-Slavery International about the connections between climate change, vulnerability to trafficking and development, and what that means for COP26 later this year, for climate finance and for the future of ESG investing. Our starting point today is a new report from the United Nations University's Centre for Policy Research called Developing Freedom, the Sustainable Development Case for Ending Modern Slavery, Forced Labour and Human Trafficking. You can find it at www.developingfreedom.org. The report, which I led, finds that slavery imposes 10 different drags on development. Slave wages undercut free wages, so slavery drags down the equilibrium wage price and undermines productivity across the economy. Slavery retards innovation and it promotes corruption. It reduces taxes but increases health care and enforcement costs for the public purse. It creates poverty that lasts intergenerationally while also promoting inequality. That's all bad news for development. And it turns out it's measurable. One study from researchers at the International Monetary Fund suggests that forced marriage, just one aspect of modern slavery, reduces GDP by over 1%. So ending modern slavery would unlock significant development gains. At the heart of the report, though, is another claim, a claim that what allows slavers and traffickers to get rich and powerful, the basis for their rent-taking, is control of other people's economic agency. Economic thinking and development practice assumes that people control their own agency. It assumes that people can decide freely what to do with their labour and what to do with the wages that labour generates, whether to spend it, to save it, or to invest it, perhaps on their own education or human development. That's just not how life works for the 40 million or so people that the ILO estimates are enslaved today. They don't control when and where they work. And even if they get paid, they often don't control what happens to those wages. They might be forced to pay fees or penalties related to their work, forced to service a debt to their employer or to somebody else that just keeps mounting, or forced to buy goods at inflated prices from their trafficker. To understand more about how victims of modern slavery have their agency restricted and what it means for them and their future development, 
I spoke with one of the leading voices in the field, Sophie Otiende of Liberty Shared. In my experience, most of the survivors that I dealt with, in many cases, if you followed the reason why they decided to, why it was easy for them to be lured into a situation, why it was easy for them to make risky decisions, it was as a result of an economic issue. So it was either a family member was sick, they could not pay their rent or something like that. From where I come from, most people, it's not even moving up. It's just they are trying to survive. They're trying to feed their children. They're trying to take care of, you know, their family members. So I would say it's the basics as opposed to really wanting a better life. And I think that's part of the problem sometimes when, especially for economic, for survivors who end up be, who first were economic, what you'd call economic migrants is that people tend to not empathize with them because they think that they're actually looking for something better when essentially what they left home. Like I've had survivors who their trafficking situation was way better than what they left home, which essentially means that they were actually making rational decisions and those rational decisions were based on like very, very dire circumstances. So it's more survival more than, you know, anything else. So restricted economic circumstances can themselves contribute to vulnerability to trafficking. A few years back, I was working with a group of around 27 Nepalese women that had been trafficked to Kenya for for sex to to Mm -hmm. work in a a brothel. Most of them, like 50-60% of them, kind of knew that probably they would be engaged in sex work because of it's a route that is known. Mm-hmm. in Nepal, in Kathmandu. But mm-hmm. what was very interesting is that in this group of about 27 women, all of them had family members that were sick, had a terminal illness, diabetes, cancer, heart condition. The trafficker was actually recruiting these women from wards in Kathmandu. Mm-hmm. Would literally go to a ward knowing very well, of course, the gendered nature of care in our community, where in most cases that the people that bear the brand of like care work when a family member falls sick, it's women, right? It's a young Mm. girl, it's a sister, it's a mother who's taking care of us. So this person literally went to wards in Kathmandu to recruit these women. And the main reason was because they had medical bills that needed to be paid. They had treatment that they could not afford. They were in dire situations. So this person would come and tell them, I'll pay the medical bills. I'll cover this and I'll give you money to come to Kenya and actually work. And you only need to work for three, six months and you'll be better than you've ever been. Please tell me if at that particular moment, if you are that girl sitting in a ward, that coming to Kenya would not be a rational choice. So when you think about how dire, the dire situations that people have. It's not that people are trying to get iPhones or are trying to, people are literally trying to save their family members' lives. They're literally just trying to get through the following day. And then they're making these decisions. What about once they're in these situations of exploitation? How do we see those situations themselves restricting their economic 
practices and behavior. We know that uh, traffickers are controlling people's labor. Are they also controlling their, their choices around what they spend their money on, whether they can save money, what they can invest in, things like that? Yes, in the sense that, like, for example, keeping with the story that I was telling you of the 27 Nepalese women that I was talking about, the person actually, of course, after bringing them to Nairobi, ended up making sure that, one, the money they made went to paying the debt that they had been had as a result of essentially him mm -hmm. paying the medical bills back home. Secondly, to, he kept convincing them that to make more money, they needed to take care of themselves. They needed to look better because, of course, you need tips. And to get tips, you need to look better, which means that they had to spend money on their clothes, on their makeup, on everything to be actually be able to, with this person convincing them that if they did this, apart from the basic salary they were getting, which all of it was going to pay their debt, they could be able to get more tips and then they could be able to make more money. But essentially that ended, just ended up being a trap where they just kept spending all this money and they, they couldn't send back any money home. For those who actually had some money and wanted to send it, he couldn't, in some cases, the, the trafficker refused for them to send it, to send the money back home so that they had this money, but they couldn't send it back home. They were in a foreign country where they had no, they did not have any accounts. They could not transfer money. They were locked in a house. And essentially, the only person they were interacting with was this particular person that was picking them in the evening, taking them to the club and bringing them back. So, yeah, there's no, like, in terms of them making decisions at that point, by the time they're in the situation, it was very difficult for them to move or even spend any money they could have possibly made in that situation. As Sophie explains, the impacts of these experiences endure well beyond the period of exploitation itself. Most survivors process trauma in their body. It means mental health issues. It means, you know, physical health issues. It means that sometimes you might not be able to go to work and most of them could not be able to go to work. If you are trying to explain to an employer where you are for the gap for a whole year or two years as a survivor, it's really difficult to explain it. It's difficult to say that I was locked in a brothel for two years. So you're yeah. carrying penalties and you're starting from behind for the, the rest of your days in a way. Yes, they couldn't. Some of them just as a result of going through what they went through, it's just become extremely difficult for them to even want to sign anything. And then when you think about how our system is set up, contracts are how we navigate almost every single thing. For someone who's been abused in that particular way, it even becomes difficult for you to offer a contract and for them to be open to sign anything. And yeah. the ability to trust must be fundamentally yeah. damaged. Yes, the ability mm. to trust, because how different are you from the person that abused that trust initially? So mm. there's that too. Now, what does this mean, Sophie, for how we help people who've been through these terrible experiences? Do we need to rethink our approach to the economic aspects of the trauma they've suffered, of the experiences they've gone through, and of their path to recovery? 
Yes, because even when you think about like a, a survivor who's come out of a situation and they are processing trauma from their experience, when they go back home and they still have to feed their family, they still have to pay debts, they still have... So you can't just ignore, you know, most of the survivors I dealt with said, you know, Sophie, please give me something to do so that I can make money first of all, before you mm -hmm. even tell me about psychosocial support. Mm -hmm. Because actually the reason why I have more stress right now is because I can't feed my family. And that goes back to how we've designed interventions. So if you look at, I've worked in protection for the past seven years. And basically, if you look at some of the interventions that are funded, they're not the interventions that actually look at economic justice as, as it's needed. Because essentially to rehabilitate and to ensure that survivors are economically independent is very expensive. You know, some of the interventions that would ensure long-term you know, independence of a survivor is not a $150 grant. That's not what economic justice looks like. So it just becomes very difficult to have those conversations. What would it look like? Are we talking about a longer term financial relationship for much longer periods? Yes, and also just the fact that I do not think that our system and when I say our system, I mean the modern slavery sector, as it is, has the capacity, resources, and is designed to deal with this. We are going to have to open up and actually work with other sectors to be able to do this. Uh, survivors need jobs. They need jobs, and they need meaningful jobs. They need jobs that you and I do. You know, They need jobs that can cover their insurance, can cover mortgage mm -hmm. and do that. Of course, one way to employ survivors is in development work itself. Sophie says that what is needed is a flexible approach that lets survivors choose their own profession, their own pathway, an approach that gives them back their agency. That's not, she says, how rehabilitation programming tends to approach these things right now. It's this idea that survivors are this one thing, which is something that I see a lot. And I think we survivors have said over and over again, when I say I'm a survivor, the only thing it says about me is that I went through this. It doesn't say anything about my capacity. It doesn't say anything mm -hmm. about my dreams. It doesn't say anything about what my future looks like. Next, I spoke with Sarah Pantoliano, Chief Executive of ODI. Well, I've actually long felt that modern slavery is a development blind spot because human rights are a development blind spot. I think, you know, the development agenda has progressively reduced the centrality of human rights issues. It's really shied away from, you know, political and civic rights. And instead, as we relied, you know, adopted a deterministic approach towards economic and social rights, thinking that economic growth alone could deliver progress. So I think it's time that development actors, you know, start to make the normative case that slavery is intrinsically deeply problematic from a human rights perspective, you know, social injustice, inequality, Violence. You know, I think I think that you know, slavery is an extreme example of violent exclusion, of inequality, of deprivation. 
you know, we are still very far away from realizing the aspiration of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights has been 73 years, you know, the human beings are born equal in dignity and in rights. And so it is essential that we reframe development challenges around, you know, the, the question of injustice and inequality and modern slavery is a part and parcel of that. Talk us through, Sarah, the connections you see to to broader human rights issues. Obviously, there is a human right to be free from slavery, but I have the feeling that you're suggesting there are more interconnections here to other rights that we should be concerned with. Yeah, I mean, I think if you really want to realise, you know, the SDGs agenda, you need to have a human rights framework that brings it all together. You know, the, ultimately, the SDGs had a human rights foundation, but, we, you know, we conveniently forget about it. You know, we, we limit modern slavery to, you know, target 8.7, but it's mm-hmm. deeply interconnected with all the other SDG targets. You know, if we talk about peaceful, just, inclusive society says in SDG 16, you know, what we're talking is really about the political, the governance, the institutional processes, the mechanisms by which human rights violations can be addressed, you know, by which you can have accountability over inequality. So you need to look at human rights and justice as a whole within the development conversation in a joined up way. You're not going to make progress on any of the areas that we're trying to tackle with Agenda 2030. And do you think that in in our current development programming, we recognise those relationships and the relationships between rights and this broader notion of economic agency? Maybe, you know, in the the human development approach, are there any seeds there for thinking about how, what, what the conditions of human flourishing are and the kinds of capabilities that humans need to develop? There are, but we conveniently ignore them because, we, you know, the development process, the development agenda has become incredibly technocratic and focused on a lot of, you know, very specialized agenda where we very sort of usually sort of look at. Sarah says this is not just a question of resources. But I strongly believe that if you really want to make progress in these issues on the global goals, including modern slavery, it's really not a financing question, or at least not just a financing question. As I was saying before, it must be viewed with a political lens. It must be viewed as a global challenge that cuts across North and South. Over the past few decades, we've seen a progressive erosion of hard-won economic and social rights everywhere. You know, we've seen the expansion of precarious work. We've seen the regression of the welfare state, you know, both North and South. I mean, if we look at in in the North, zero hour contracts, you know, abysmally low wages that really force people in full-time work to rely on food banks, the lack of basic protections for workers, and then all the progressive challenges we see for labor rights. I think they've created a shared agenda between rich and poor countries on labor exploitation and modern slavery. And so, you know, we need a, a strategic approach that can tackle these issues, not just you know, transferring money and you know, funding flows, but really you know, prioritizing a different way to advocate for this agenda, you know, prioritizing a multilateralism that pitches this as a global political problem rather than an aid or a development issue. One person who has attempted to push development actors to tackle modern slavery at the highest political levels is Ambassador Sarah Mendelssohn. From 2010 to 2014, Ambassador Mendelssohn served as Deputy Assistant Administrator at the United States Agency for International Development, USAID, where, amongst other things, 
She was the lead on addressing the problem of human trafficking. Then in 2015, Ambassador Mendelssohn was confirmed by Congress as US Ambassador to the UN Economic and Social Council in New York. While in New York, she worked with Ambassador Samantha Power, then the US Ambassador to the UN, and now, of course, Administrator of USAID, to bring human trafficking issues into the UN Security Council. You know, the thing about the SDGs that I always think is remarkable is that it's a paradigm shift in both how we think about sustainability. So it's it's beyond climate. It's really talking about the sustainability of communities and what is what could be more not sustainable than slavery, right? So if you really want a sustainable community, you have to be eliminating the buying and selling of people in that community. And it's also a paradigm shift in how we think about development. Uh, and this is very helpful. Development happens everywhere. It's not just something about the global South. And for those of us who've been working on modern slavery and combating human trafficking around the world, we know that it's not just about the global South and it, it happens in, in communities everywhere. So this is a framework that can be very helpful in broadening constituencies to understand this issue. It also helps us really reframe and get beyond, as you and I have discussed before, a purely criminal justice perspective, right? So it's really understanding this in the development context and whether that's economic, social, political, and so that it's not just about criminal justice, although of course the prosecution of traffickers is important, So there are multiple different instruments governments can bring to bear on this problem, from diplomacy to development finance. Is that what led you to bring this issue into the Security Council in 2015? Thanks for the question. I should say that certainly the final decision on the how the U.S. presidency at the Security Council was used in December 2015 rested very much with Ambassador Rice and Ambassador Power, but I was very grateful that they were open to the idea of bringing the issue of human trafficking into the Security Council for the first time in 70 years. So that was a moving moment in my experience in government. I think that there are a couple things that happened when I was stepping back, when I was working at USAID. We were able to, inside the agency, we looked for, sometimes it's a very bad cliche, but low-hanging fruit. What could you do fairly quickly that didn't necessarily cost a lot of money but could have ramifications and send a signal, and that was a code of conduct for AID personnel contractors, just sending a signal that this was important to leadership. But then also, it had been at that point, something like 10 years before there had been a rethink of policy or strategy, and so we set about writing a new one that was 2011-2012, and I welcome AID colleagues and 2021, 2022, doing the same thing, we ended up launching the new policy at the White House in February 2012, which then led to a number of things that really helped us elevate and get a more of an interagency approach. So on that interagency approach, is human trafficking now something that other agencies consider more routinely? It hasn't, to my mind, completely permeated, and this is certainly true, I would say, for the Agency for International Development. Until we have people who every day their job is working on global health or climate or food, and they understand how 
the issue of modern slavery and human trafficking touches on what they're doing as a public health issue, as an issue around forced labor and food, as related to forced migration and climate refugees. I think we still a lot we have a lot of work to do on that. In our recent report, Developing Freedom, we we look at that question in a sense, asking what are, what are we missing out on by not mainstreaming considerations of modern slavery, forced labor, human trafficking. And one of the things we found there was, I think, to our surprise, that there's a pretty substantial case now that we are missing out not just on these adjacent gains in these adjacent issues, but some pretty significant economic gains that we would otherwise be accessing by removing these restrictions on people's ability to exercise their full agency in the in the economy. Is that thinking more from the the financial end of the development telescope? Is that a perspective that is recognized in the development community broadly, do you think, that there are gains to be made by tackling these issues at scale? It's unclear to me. I, I, I mean, when we wrote the policy, we were trying to, I like the word mainstreaming, we were talking about integration and the ability to, when you have these larger funds for, say, climate or food or health, that you understand how it relates to the issue of modern slavery and human trafficking. But you also need the standalone funds. So I think there's much more to do on the mainstreaming. And then the standalone funds generally have been very small. And so where I see the opportunity with the Sustainable Development Goals in part reflects the opportunity that we had with the Millennium Development Goals, collective action. If we had a number of donors that were coming together on a regular basis talking about collective action around modern slavery, both from the mainstreaming perspective, but also the very focused specific funds on combating slavery, I think you'd get more progress. I mean, we just don't have a world in which there are regular donor dialogues on this issue. Although there's limited collective action, in our research for developing freedom, we did find that a number of development finance institutions are beginning to tackle these issues. I spoke with Mark Eckstein, Director of the Environment, Social and Governance Team at CDC. Mark, what is CDC? The CDC is the UK's Development Finance Institution. We are owned by the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, and we are essentially a private sector investor in South Asia and Africa. We have a 70-year history. We were the first DFI. And over that period, we've invested in a wide range of private sector companies, infrastructure, financial institutions, health, education, general manufacturing, heavy industry, in a range of emerging market geographies. And currently, we are investing in South Asia and Africa. And I head up the team of ESG professionals at CDC. We're part of a bigger impact group, which comprises about 60 people now. And the ESG team is 22 of that total. And our role is a combination of things, primarily to ensure that our code of responsible investing is included and met in all of the investments we make, and also to help our portfolio companies 
see value and derive value from better environment and social performance. So it's a combination of risk management and value creation. And labor practices is a fundamental element of every deal we look at. They all employ people, and we need to make sure that those employment practices meet international standards. And that is a huge part of of the work of all of my team and understanding modern slavery and other forms of indentured labor and and forced labor and trafficking in the deals that we do is a very, very important part of, of what we focus on both during our due diligence and portfolio management. What kind of size of portfolio are we looking at here, Mark? And, and are these uh, primarily sole investments or are you uh, going in with partners into the markets you described? So we have a five billion pound portfolio, which is sounds a lot if you're an individual, but of course in financial markets, it's relatively small, shall we say. We do a lot of co-investing and CDC has a, a debt business, a private equity business and a fund of funds business. Our fund of funds business is very important to us. We're the biggest private equity investor in Africa. And all of the funds that we're backing are obviously have a multiple range of other limited partners, other investors. Some of them are development finance institutions. Some of them are impact investors and some of them are, are more commercially minded LPs. Our presence, I think, genuinely encourages and provides reassurance to many of those now because we ensure that a set of environmental and social requirements and sort of capacity are built into the the funds that we're backing. So we part of what we achieve through that is leveraging and enabling uh, broader environmental and social benefits because of the co-investments and the scale that we get to with our private equity business, our debt business. We often are co-lenders with with others in large infrastructure and other projects and investments. So yes, we crowd in capital where we can. Great. You've mentioned CDC has invested quite significantly in in South Asia and in Africa, uh, both regions where we know there is significant prevalence of modern slavery on a per capita basis. How do you understand the risks of modern slavery in those geographies and what they mean for your investments? Uh, that's a good question. So we, we look at all of the investments that, that come across our desks through the lens of the inherent risks that we can assume in that specific investment. And that's a combination of the sector, the country, and the investee that we're working with. And obviously, there are some sectors, agribusiness is often cited, but I think there are a range of others, including construction and solar panels in some instances, where we we know now, because of what we see in the media, what we commission in terms of uh, due diligence and research that helps inform our understanding of the contextual risks in the countries and sectors that we are investing in. So where we know that we've got an increased likelihood of forced labor or modern slavery and other forms, we will be looking at that in the due diligence that we commission. And for your listeners, we pretty typically commission third-party due diligence for most of our investments. So we will go to environment, social, business integrity, and other consultancies who can help us understand the specific risks of an investment. And that knowledge informs our 
involvement in the investment committee process, and, and that's the way in which we make decisions about investments, and ultimately is distilled into environment, social, or integrity action plans, which become legally binding requirements in our investments. So where we know we have a likelihood or an increased likelihood of forced labor in a deal, we will be looking at that during diligence and we will be working with investees to create an action plan that helps them to manage and remove that risk if it is present and over time to create better working conditions either for their direct employees or in their value chains. And it is much more frequently in the value chains of our investments that we encounter these types of issue. I've yet to meet a, a CDC investee who is either aware of or welcomes modern slavery on their books. You know, they don't want it there. It's a problem for them. And it's it's morally abhorrent for most of them, hopefully all of them. But so some of them don't know they've got it until we help them understand where it occurs in their business. And as I said, that is often in supply chains. And so that's, that's you know, a really important part of, of what the ESG team delivers for, for CDC. So if I've understood that correctly, Mark, the driver here is primarily a commercial one in the investment decision-making. And the modern slavery risk question is a question of risk management and de-risking rather than CDC looking for investments that would actively seek to target and reduce modern slavery risks in a particular industry or geography. Is that right? Is that the way that the modern slavery risk factors into the investment decision-making and management process? James, I think it's right to say it's a it is a risk management starting point. It isn't only commercial factors that shape our thinking. We, you know, there are a set of social standards and labour practice standards that we must achieve. So this is also a an ESG driven expectation. But ultimately, we and I think all of my DFI peers, my development finance institution peers, and the multilaterals approach this issue through the lens of risk management and safeguarding. And I think that's an interesting point. And it sits uncomfortably in my mind in how you've positioned your your excellent report, which is starting from the other end of the spectrum and saying it's an economic imperative to address modern slavery. And it's difficult for CDC to, I mean, absolutely, I understand the thesis and applaud the logic and the approach that you've taken. But as a private sector investor, it's difficult for us to get into that conversation in terms of the role and agency we have as an investor looking at individual transactions to take a step back and say, what is our role in shaping the economic growth and productivity ambitions of either a sector or a region or a country. We don't engage with governments in the same way as aid agencies or the World Bank or the Inter-American Development Bank, which operate both as a private sector investor and as an agency engaging with governments and public agencies, if you like. We don't have that agency and mandate ourselves. And so our starting point inevitably is through the lens of a transaction and what can we do at that level. And I think part of the challenge that we have with modern slavery is that we need that level and we need the higher level engagement at the government level, if you like. And it's really a, a partnership of 
of different actors who can bring their skills, their experience, and their responsibilities and agency, if you like, to this conversation so that we get, you know, the collection is more than the sum of the parts. And I think we're still, in all honesty, struggling to find the ways in which we can make that case. For example, CDC is in the process of designing its next five-year strategy, which we are negotiating with our, our shareholder. And the way in which we could introduce a modern slavery lens is primarily through my role and my team's role and not taking a step back and saying, you know, what would we want to see as a, as a as an organization in terms of that big change agenda? We have big ambitions around gender and diversity. We have huge ambitions around climate. We've got a very busy landscape of things that CDC needs to deliver in its next five-year strategy. And figuring out how we embed a modern slavery lens and set of ambitions across that landscape is part of what we're doing at the moment. But it is not going to start with a, a high level, we're going to engage in public policy and, and shape the way that economic growth occurs at a sector or a country level. That's just, we don't have that opportunity. Mark differentiated the narrow role of his organization, CDC, from the broader opportunities enjoyed by multilateral development banks, specifically mentioning the Inter-American Development Bank. Curious, I approached the ESG division chief of IDB Invest, Gabriel Azevedo, to find out how they approach modern slavery questions. Thanks, James. It's a pleasure to be here talking to you about this critical development agenda item. We are a multilateral development bank, like many others, like the World Bank, which is global, or the European Development Bank, or the Africa Development Bank. So we are part of the IDB group, and our focus is to promote development in Latin America and the Caribbean. We operate in 26 countries in the region, and basically we are a cooperative of countries that involve shareholders from the region, countries that receive develop the, our, our investments in development and those countries that are not from the region and they are donors to this cooperative. And IDB Invest in particular is the arm of the IDB group that promotes development through the private sector in Latin America and the Caribbean. Can you tell us a little bit, Gabrielle, about the way you approach those kinds of uh, environmental, social and governance risks? Are these project management risks that you address through project management safeguards? Are they factors in capital allocation choices and programming and advisory choices? How does IDB Invest understand ESG risks broadly? All of the above and a little bit more. So when I say a little bit more, the first part is the macro level policy approach, which really happens as part of the IDB group. Now, the policy dialogue with governments in the countries that we operate at is really uh, led by our uh, sister institution, the IDB, that works with the private sector. So you have to attack those issues first at the policymaking macro level in the dialogue with governments, and the group does that. Then at the project level, Obviously, we look at the entire realm of ESG-related issues, environmental issues, social issues, corporate governance issues, which are a major risk, but also a major opportunity in our region to improve. 
So we attacked it at the macro level, we attacked at the project level, and we also make investment decisions based on sustainability factors. For instance, at the IDB Invest, we do have corporate targets on parts or percentage of, of our investments that need to go towards climate mitigation or towards projects that promote gender inclusion and diversity. So we do have those institutional targets with some indicators that we need to report to. We have the policy dialogue at the group level, and then we have all the heavy work at the project level. Great. Now, the risks we're particularly focusing on in this uh, series are obviously in the area of labour standards and labour exploitation, forced labour, human trafficking, modern slavery. Where do they fit in that hierarchy of how you approach risks? Are they seen as a macro question or do they fit somewhere else? It fits both at the macro level, as you put it very well, like how you make decisions, the issues related to policy and the issues related to the development model that you're supporting, right? Which is a macro level question. It is very hard to attack the issue of slavery if the development model really doesn't have a focus on inclusion, on providing access, on generating value to the most vulnerable. And that's a macro level. So within that context, assuming that you have a a development model for a country or a region which promotes no inclusive and development, then we really have to focus at the project level and especially in us working with the private sector. And here I highlight the whole realm of social issues and where they fit. But also we need what it represents in terms of potential gains and returns and, and, and risks, including financial risks to our clients So where do you see those risks rising, Gabriel? The most common risks uh, in in the environment that we operate relate to labor conditions, right? Freedom of association, a clear and transparent labor framework for the contract of workers, for instance. And we know that there are sectors that are more prone to those risks. For instance, we work in multiple sectors, but we know that the set of projects dealing with infrastructure, for instance, with large contingents of migrating workers or temporary workers, or the sectors dealing with the agribusiness, which is a very important economic sector in Latin America, are more prone to those kinds of risks. So the whole area of issues associated with labor conditions, from the most basic labor contracts or the retention of documentation or quarters or this sort of of issues. We have faced issues of lack of hydration in agriculture field, which are fairly basic. But then a lot of other issues that are associated with these activities, no gender-based violence, prostitution, activities that are focused on, on children, for instance. So there are the indirect consequences, and those are the hardest to detect, to anticipate, and obviously to act upon to mitigate. And that's why it's so important, this concerted effort that your work is promoting amongst not only development institutions, but involving CSOs, involving governments, and involving the private sector, our clients. Gabriel says that more is needed. 
I just don't know if that's enough. And I think we need to continue to push that agenda and perhaps place it as a central goal of our mission. And I think, again, your report makes reference to that. No, how do you elevate this issue into a transformative agenda that is part of the focus and the objectives of all those institutions together? I think that's a challenge and the opportunity we have. It's also a challenge, I would say, Gabriel, because we see such a big emphasis now on environmental factors. And understandably, there's a a real pressure coming from markets and increasingly from governments for investors to focus on rapid decarbonisation. Is that competing with labour standards questions for the bandwidth of actors like uh, IDB Invest? Or is there a synergy? Are there particular areas around uh, renewable supply chains or manufacturing or anything else where these issues can be addressed together at the same time? This is an excellent question, James. And conceptually, to the last part of your question, I do feel there is an opportunity to integrate those issues, right? We talk about climate, for instance, and we talk about, let's talk about my own country, Brazil, and what's happening with deforestation on the Amazon. That is both negative to climate, but it's also hugely negative, and it's promoting the migration of local and traditional communities. So there is an integration there. But I need to be honest with you, in practice right now, when you talk about the allocation of resources, be it human resources or financial resources for issues like advisory or technical assistance, we see a lot more availability and appetite in the donors and donor countries and and private donors for issues related to, for instance, climate mitigation or climate adaptation, which, as I said, is very positive, but I personally would like to see a better balance on promoting the connections and the integrations about these agendas. You mentioned a few areas in which I think there's evolution. Supply chain is one of them, knowing how we look at supply chain. That's something that I think has evolved well. But again, when you go into the availability of resources, I think we need to do a a more strategic narrative in thinking on how we add and not subtract and how we combine these agendas because there is a very close relationship between economic, about environmental degradation and issues affecting the whole set of social aspects, including slavery. Environmental degradation is not dissociated from social issues. And if you go to the limit, no, when climate continues to deteriorate, the impacts are going to be felt by the most vulnerable first. And when that happens, again, issues of migration and putting people at risk will grow. So, Struck by Gabrielle's emphasis on the connections between anti-slavery and climate action, I reached out to Fran Witt, climate change advisor to Anti-Slavery International. Fran, why does Anti-Slavery International have a climate change advisor? Yes, thank you. It's a great question. Uh, As you may know, anti-slavery is a human rights organisation and it is, in fact, the oldest human rights organisation in the world, now 181 years old. And 
anti-slavery's interest in climate change is quite recent. And I think that the main reason for that is we have begun to understand that the impacts of climate change on people who are extremely vulnerable to exploitation, to trafficking and to modern slavery are tipping into those, those forms of slavery, which they didn't before. And that's as a direct result of the impacts of climate change. So Anti-Slavery International has just brought out an important report on this topic, Fran, uh, from a vicious to a virtuous circle. What's the vicious circle that it's mentioning in the title there? So the vicious circle in the Anti-Slavery report is really talking about how climate change is part of a cycle which is driving people into vulnerability to modern slavery. It demonstrates that not only does climate change itself put people in the conditions where they can be easily exploited, but also that people who are working in industries such as mining or deforestation, say, for example, in the Amazon or in the Sundarbans in Bangladesh, are also working in conditions of forced and bonded labour, but also contributing to the climate crisis. Is the idea here then that climate adaptation and resilience in the face of climate change can be understood as an anti-slavery measure or even an anti-slavery investment? Yes, that's right. So one of the things that anti-slavery has been looking into is how can we respond to the modern slavery issue within climate finance in particular? So I'd like to give you an example of how people may fall into modern slavery because of the impacts of climate change. So I was recently speaking to a partner of ours in Ghana, and they were talking about the fishing industry in Ghana and how people have traditionally lived from the sea and they've lived through the catch and sale of fish. But because of sea level rise and because of the heating of the sea, the catches are reducing, and it also includes pollution of the sea and overfishing as well. But it means that people who have traditionally lived from the fishing industry can no longer do that. And as a result of that impact, direct impact of climate change, people are selling their children into domestic servitude and into mm. forced marriage. And this, this is an example where people are thinking, how can they improve the lives of their children? They're not thinking of it as an economic gain for themselves, but they think that their children might be better off by living in domestic servitude or forced marriage than they would be staying with the families. It's a coping strategy brought on by a, a terrible set of choices that these families are confronting. Yeah. And what does that mean for then for how we think about supporting the response of a government like, like the government of Ghana to these issues? Should we be thinking from a development finance perspective of investments in addressing the impacts of climate change partly by looking at their impacts on vulnerability to forced marriage, to domestic servitude? Yes, I mean, I think from the point of view of anti-slavery, we're thinking about what the potential is of climate finance to specifically tackle vulnerability to modern slavery. 
Um, and that would be one of the examples of where we think the climate finance could be used to very specifically highlight this issue. So thinking about the COP, COP26, which is coming up at the end of this year in Glasgow in the UK, we are considering how to include modern slavery in climate finance for adaptation and resilience, but also for loss and damage. And I realise that there's lots of pressure on climate finance to respond to a lot of issues, but slavery is an incredibly important issue that needs addressing immediately. And we have concern that unless we do address it as part of the climate dialogue, then the number of people in modern slavery is going to increase. The parallels here are really quite fascinating. We, In dealing with uh, investors and other financial sector entities, we often hear people talking about the parallels between collective action on climate and collective action on social externalities like modern slavery and the need to price in the, the true social costs of business models, whether it's as a result of carbon emissions or, or biodiversity loss or, on the other hand, the social impacts of just-in-time out supply chains or outsourcing offshoring. Do you think that there are specific lessons for financial sector actors to learn about how they tackle modern slavery in their own businesses from what they've been doing already on climate action? Yes, I do. I think that that's really important. I think there needs to be a more, certainly more awareness in the financial sector about the use of forced and bonded and other forms of modern slavery in supply chains and also in the actions of companies engaged in mining and deforestation, for example. I think to start with, there is a lack of awareness about the use of modern slavery. And so companies that are investing need to be very aware when they're looking at the potential risks of the financial intermediaries that they're working with and with the supply chains that they're working with, that they consider the potential that people are being forced to work and that that's part of their due diligence or their environmental and social safeguarding. What started out then at the beginning of this episode as a reflection on how the restriction of people's economic agency impacts both their and their community's development has led us to reflect on the role of companies and investors in due diligence, figuring out where they're exposed to modern slavery risks through their business or business relationships. Due diligence looms increasingly large as an anti-slavery tool, especially as the European Union looks poised to adopt mandatory human rights due diligence laws. So that's what we'll focus on in the next episode. Join us next time to hear from some of the leading experts on modern slavery due diligence, disclosure, and benchmarking. Until then, this is James Cocaine for Fast Podcast. In the meantime, visit us at fastinitiative.org, on Twitter at fincomslavery, or on LinkedIn's Fast Initiative profile. Please send us your feedback and suggestions by email to info at fastinitiative.org. And until next time, thanks for listening.
This is a podcast recording by United Nations University Center for Policy Research. The views expressed are those of the speakers.